it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 206. Our final episode for 2022. Can you believe it? I know. It's also Boxing Day. Happy Boxing Day. Happy Boxing Day to all our consumerist friends out there. Capitalism. Capitalism. Hail capitalism. <laughs> now, I mean, look at us. We could be out there buying things on the cheap, Zeke. We could. But we're here to entertain the audience instead. Absolutely. You know, I think I think we're doing the world a service. Yeah. Did and you get our... anything cool for Christmas, Jake? I did. I got well I got I got some really cool stuff actually. So friend of the show, Keish, who actually won our episode one hundred uh what was it called? Competition mm. thing image ago. She bought me the entire Better Call Soul box set on Blu ray, which I was very appreciative of. That's amazing. That's insane. So the, hmm? Does that so you got the whole thing? They've released the, whole, the like all all the whole sh- whole show. On they Blu-ray. released the final season already. Yeah, dude, that c- came out all last year or in the last year. Whoa. Where is time what, gone? What is? <laughs> no, it's all My out, Lord. man. My it's Lord. all done. So there you go. You have no excuse now, mate. You got to no. watch it all. No, I've got Stan too. So really yeah, exactly. No, excuse. no, it's it's excellent. I got. I can't lie. It's pretty much the only thing I've been watching the last week is the commentary tracks for the season six episodes, and um, there's some great stuff. In fact. This isn't our trivia of the week, Zeke, for the film mm-hmm. of the week. This is a, this is an extra one for our audience. You love giving little lectures. I do. I've been doing that a lot lately. But if you have the Better Call Saul Blu-ray, season six, put in disc free, and then then scroll over to the episodes, the little, little sub menus, go to Fun and Games, which is the ninth episode. Now click down to the deleted scenes, and then click left as if you're like backing out into the old menu, and instead you get a bonus feature about Kim's ponytail. So a little, little little, little trivia for everyone out there. If you got it, look out for a little hey. bonus feature that's not in the back of the box. So. Well, hey, speaking of trivia, Jake, mm. do you have any trivia from the film of the week? Ooh, Glass Onion, I a do. Knives Out mystery. There you go. I'll give you I'll give you just all the trivia facts right now. Okay. No, well, it's, it's funny because there, there was a lot of great stuff. There was. There's a lot of great trivia facts, but I'll, I'll talk about one that I... Because I, I've seen the film twice now, and I keep forgetting to look out for this, but it was actually Ryan Johnson years ago that was the one that sort of unveiled the curtain behind the whole bad guys can't use iPhones rule that Apple has for people mm-hmm. who you know contact them, want to use the phones in their films and whatnot, uh, which was a bit of a giveaway for a bit of the mystery in the original Knives Out. So it was fitting, and again, I keep forgetting to check for this, but apparently... All of the suspects in this film have Android phones to sort of uh, tuck away the potential clues to the mystery. I think I think Benyard Blanc is the only one with an iPhone in this film. There you go. Although it gets messy because he does ask for an iPad at one point in the film. Mm. It gets a little dicey. That's interesting. But nevertheless, we'll get yes. into that soon. Zeke, well, before I get into the trivia, did you get anything nifty for Christmas. I did. I got some really cool stuff. Um, I got a Catan board game expansion pack to the original game. It's the Pirates and Seafarers expansion. I'm very excited to play it. Um, Yeah, I was given an Nespresso coffee pod machine, which was pretty hectic. Yeah, that's that's, awesome. Lots of teacher shirts and ties and... and, uh, Ties, I love it. A... You're going to become Saul Goodman. Quite a few, ties. quite a few pairs of Vans, which I do love. My Vans, oh, so, excellent. Um, some different colours in there, so probably see them appear a lot in the next year. I'll mm. probably just be wearing Vans exclusively, but <laughs> it was a fantastic day. Very oh, memorable. Excellent. Um, 
And I did manage to sneak the film of the weekend with my own trivia. So Beautiful. So what, what is that trivia, Zeke? What have you got well, for me? Can you believe it? In this film, has a massive ensemble cast. Not as big as the first cast. No, it does not. It's but slightly smaller. Still, obviously, um, Ryan Johnson does like... Uh, has recast someone that was in a previous Ryan Johnson film, namely mm. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who voices <laughs> the hourly dong. <laughs> I love that so much. Apparently, is that is his first recast? Technically, well, I think I think Ryan Johnson, uh, Ryan Johnson, I think um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's in every single Ryan Johnson film. There you he go. Play, he plays, yes, yeah, he plays like a cop that you can kind of hear off screen for like a second in Knives Out during the car chase. And then obviously he's the lead actor in Brick. And he's Looper, a stormtrooper, isn't he? And he's a stormtrooper in Last Jedi. You were correct. There you go. So he, he keeps he keeps popping up. Wasn't, you know what? Daniel Craig was a stormtrooper, but not mm. not in The Last in Jedi. In JJ's. That's crazy. Order. So. What a, I, wonder, I wonder if that has anything to do with the the Daniel Craig connection to Knives Out. Right? Um, I do be not. honest, I would say it's probably closer to his Bond stuff would be what I would think. But I think it'd be, you know what, I would say it's partly Bond and mm. then actually uh, I would suggest tipping the hat to Soderbergh for Logan Lucky. Ah. For Craig's depiction of a, a redneck in that, yeah, where that, the accent comedic. at least comes from, and yeah, the yeah. definitely the mannerisms are a little bit more akin than his Bond character, that's very stoic and um, quite. I'm reframing yeah. from emotion, particularly in the, the latter films. So, mm. don't know where that that connection comes from, but yeah, that's probably just I mean, a coincidence. Believe it or not, I mean Daniel Craig's been around for. I, I, oh, wow. I was talking about Spielberg's <laughs> Munich a couple of weeks ago. That's 2005, and he's co-starring in that. Yeah, yeah. So I think everyone severely underestimates how long Daniel Craig has been active in the, the Hollywood That's thing. true. Because everyone remembers, like, oh, Skyfall. Skyfall's in the middle of the bottom. Yeah, no, that, that's like the peak of it, I suppose. Yeah. It certainly wasn't his first go-around. No. You know, Casino Royale came out in 2006. Yeah. <laughs> Like, it's a long time ago. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I feel like Ryan Jones, he's just one of those guys where you just like, how did he get in contact with this person and this person? It's, but Hollywood's fascinating. We talk about this with so many directors. Yeah. How they meet their actors and... And, and I mean, another thing, Johnson's been active since 2009 with Brick. Brick was 2009. Um, Lupus, 2011, was no, 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 no. I think, uh, well, Lupus 2012, actually, I think. And then Brick was like 2005. That goes back a while. So, I know, think. So, they've probably yeah, actually he's... been active roughly around the same time. Yeah. Well, I uh, yeah. I'm, Maybe Craig a little I wouldn't. I, yeah, I wouldn't know what Daniel Craig's first film was, but... No, but it's, it's... it's. I find it all fascinatingly interesting. But yeah, I definitely didn't notice that, that he was the the gong, or <laughs> the, the sound. <laughs> the, yeah, I think the, Munich's the, the earliest film <laughs> I can recount. I don't know if Layer Cake is earlier, which is a... I don't even know what that is. Guy Ritchie film. Ah, okay. Which wouldn't surprise... I mean... British ensemble Guy Ritchie was sure. kind of the, the guy for that. Fair enough. <laughs> but we're tangenting. Jake, have yes. you caught anything other than these DVD commentary of Better Call Saul? Oh, no. Last week? Well, bef- before we move on, Zeke. Okay, beg my pardon. The, po- oh, yes. the poster. Sorry, the poster. How good about the 1100 film poster? Would you put Glass Onion on your poster? No. Mm, interesting. Now, all I will say to that is. I would actually say no too, in the sense that the original 
definitely should be on yes, there. Yes, agreed. And then the fact... We talked about this with the with Spider-Man No Way Home. The mm-hmm. fact that the, the first Spider-Man's on there, and that's really all you need. Yep. And it's almost like if it's like a recommended list, all right, well, watch Knives Out. And if you're so intrigued by this, then go ahead and watch its sequels. Agreed. I mean, I think that logic pertains. I think that's but, bang on the money. Yeah, but that that doesn't preview my thoughts on the film. Well, people know what my thoughts are on the film already, but we'll get into that. No, the um, I mean, like Christmas films, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, just stuff that's on TV or of course whatnot. Other than that, and the the, the Blu-ray commentaries. No, I did watch actually. The Criterion put out there, it's becoming like an annual thing now. They put out their room tone videos, okay. which are these, they have no right to be as beautiful as they are, these videos, where obviously throughout the year they, they get a lot of interviews with a lot of famous you know, filmmakers and, and actors and whatnot. And this is a compilation of all of the room tone moments where they've got a minute of room tone of them just sort of sitting in a chair and how they what they do in that one minute of room tone and mm. silence and it, yeah it has no right to be as beautiful as it is it just feels so human like all their reactions and it's almost that you have like this prestigious you know there's a thing of Bon Joon Ho in there and it's like seeing him this prestigious filmmaker sort of crack a smile because we're all waiting for room tone to be done I mean it's so relatable it's I have to shout it out Criterion good stuff but no, that's literally all I've watched in the last week, Z. <laughs> what about you? Um, yeah, look. So, I continued my Spielberg tear. Nice. Um, clocking another two films off his filmography. I caught the 1997 um, race drama, Amistad, which centers around a legal case um, involving African slaves. Yep. And the... Um, overthrowing of their captors which led to a legal case on property bay starring um a interesting collection which you I, I don't think any of these actors have reappeared in a spielberg film following this film oh okay anthony hopkins morgan freeman matthew mcconaughey and i believe it's a scars guard but i'll double check that one. Oh, okay um, which what, what year was this again 97 oh um, um scars, scars getting early. oh matthew mcconaughey's in it Stellan Skarsgård, yeah. Oh, there he is, Stellan Skarsgård. And um, uh, Digimon Honsu, who plays Sinke, yeah. who is the central African character. It's a good film. It's a yeah. very, like, cla- it, it's very Lincoln-esque. Okay. Um, in its, <laughs> to quite another Spielberg film. Yes. Um, I think it follows a very similar sort of structure. I think, obviously, this is the predecessor to Lincoln, so obviously anything that's from Lincoln is actually derivative of this film. Sure. Um. Yeah, it's a good film. It's a good legal case film. It's a very. It sits in the company of of typical legal case films and Elon Gates. It's, um, probably not a film that a, you you would go. Oh, what's a necessary Spielberg film? It wouldn't probably sure. Sit in that I company. I barely even know of this film until you started talking about it. Then, so in terms of his resume, yeah. <laughs> but it's good to watch these films. These films are less mentioned, but sometimes the reason they're less mentioned is they're just not as. They're not, not as popular. Yeah, not as popular, yeah. or, you know. But that being said, I then watched uh, 2000's uh, AI, Artificial Ooh. Intelligence, which... Is a, is, is a lot more popular than, than this it one. Is. It is. <laughs> a lot of people would put this in the company of this is one of the better Spielberg films out there. Yeah, from 2001. Mm-hmm. Which, um, you're right, it's sort of a weird time for him. I mean, you, you're approaching um, Catch Me If You Can, but 
Yeah, otherwise this is a bit of a weird Spielberg time. Yeah, look, and it's it's an interesting film. I thought it was good. I think um, the performance by Haley Joe Osman, who's the child actor who plays David, was fantastic. Mm. Um, and Jude Law has a has a pretty compelling um, sort of uh, co you know co starring or well um, supporting role. And yeah, it's a good film. It. It's one of those films that, once again, it's it's sci- very sci-fi based. So it's very sure. you're very immersed in the in the world, and I think it's an interesting film in terms of it. It sort of touches on the same bases that Blade Runner does. Mm. I think Blade Runner does it better. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's one of those things. You know, it's obviously that humanity. It's this AI robot that's trying to become human. It's actually. Ironically, it's a it's a Pinocchio story, okay. just in a sci-fi context. Um, to give it a little tease, um, but yeah, and in fact, Pinocchio the literature is actually read in the story, so it becomes very, oh, it becomes very, very yeah, obvious clear. that it's a Pinocchio-based story in a sci-fi setting, and very clever. Yeah, it's a good film. It's a good film. Um, it's funny because looking at my, I've only got eight people on my letterbox that have seen it four of them that have given it ratings, and two of those four ratings are respectively five stars and half a star. So that <laughs> that is a split right there. Yes. I don't think I've ever seen that before. Very divisive, <laughs> this film. I think oh it's my God. fine. There are some little contrivances in there, and it really does feel predominantly at times just an exploration of, of the imagination of, of Spielberg's sci-fi world. Yeah. Um, but you could argue that's very similar to Blade Runner with the way Scott fleshes out 2019 LA. Um, but, yeah, good piece of sci-fi literature. Yeah, Nothing, I would love uh, to check it out one day. It's a, I would say it's a necessary Spielberg watch. Brendan it Gleeson's would, in it. Would yeah. Look at that. Doesn't have a massive role. No, no, he's right, he's right tucked away at the very bottom of the credits. So, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. But, but I was really hoping to catch um, Banshees of Inishirin. I was hoping to go this morning at like 9.30, but I was just so tired. Mm. I was like, I can't do it. But it is playing wide again. You're right, Zeke. Yes. Because we talked about this. You were saying like, oh, is it even playing next week? I was like, oh, yeah, it's coming in and out. It's coming in. It's straight up no sessions last week oh. at all. So it's like a wide again today or even yesterday, I think, oh, on Christmas Day. Might catch so. it between now and next week. Who knows? Yeah, so it's, it's kind of back in this. I think we're starting to itch at that point where... We're getting release date. Uh, apparently, the triangle is it Triangle of Happiness? Is that what's called the Palm Dior winner this year? Apparently, that's at Palace today, which I couldn't find sessions for. I was don't know what was going on there. Mm-hmm. And then obviously, Fablemans is only a couple of weeks away now. But you've already you caught the preview screening. Um, so I don't know when Tar's coming out, but a lot of good stuff is around the corner, yeah, which is tar, really exciting. Whale. The whale, yes, that's another yeah. one. Um, so there's a lot to look forward to. Uh, Babylon is Babylon only a couple of weeks away. Yeah, that's very soon. Um, I think Hoyt's like mid yeah mid January is when it's gonna. Mm-hmm. So you're right, a lot of good stuff on the on the way. Gonna be busy. It always is start of the year. Yeah, because for some reason we just don't get any of these like Oscar Oscar contenders until January, start, February, start of the much, yeah. yeah it started the new year. We didn't get the father until February. That's insane. Yeah, it's pretty wild. He won the Oscar like a week after that. <laughs> and then yeah, I watched uh, only a, a relatively. Uh, a documentary that sort of followed the lines, a documentary slash music performance, um, or, which is a Creedence Clearwater revival at, live at Royal Albert Hall. Oh. This is a documentary series that basically is a biography 
um, in its first act. And yep. it's honestly, it's a two-act film, basically. Its first act is just an archival documentary around Credence's rise to fame and this sort of convergence night. It, it definitely tries to operate the mantra that The Last Waltz does in terms okay. of this event, this... It's less interspliced like Lars Waltz's. It's very much set up. Here's the live performance, but okay. this performance a bit more in, like beat, beat, beat. Yeah, but not as much like interweaving of the yeah. Songs. Okay. And it's narrated by Jeff Bridges, um, who has that very. I mean, he has a very iconoclastic, very credence appropriate kind of voice to right. drive <laughs> this archival footage of of credence converging on their 1970 performance at Royal Albert Hall, which came two days after the Beatles broke up. Mm. And at the time, Credence was number two in the world for right. like all-male bands. And um, so this performance at Royal Albert Hall, you know, home of the, you know, the Beatles, was a huge concert in terms of putting them at the top of the world at the time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they basically set these stakes up and then you just watch John Fogarty and his band basically perform uh, the full concert, the full hour concert. Nice. And it ends up being... It's a really good way of setting the stakes and then having the show. I, I've seen this structure um, done with, like, The Eagles' Hell Freezes Over where the first mm. 40 minutes of the... Do- uh, 40 minutes is a documentary of just them talking about how they broke up for 13 years and Hell yep. Freezes... This is the first concert the eagles are playing after being broken up for 15 years mm. and then the concert just plays out so it's set up interesting concert this might be a bizarre comparison but even just something like top gun maverick where it's like it spends 75 percent of the film like setting up the stakes for this one thing yeah and then the rest of the film plays out with this thing and you've built it for so long that the stakes are so high now yeah, and I quite like it. I I, I like the style. The the, the and I think the precedent was set with Scorsese's The Last Waltz. Mm. And I've seen that style appear with things like you know even like Cat Empire on the Attack, their original sure yeah. um, first album launch, where they're talking about sort of how their band came together and then integrating songs from that album mm. um, and live performances from different areas, and that's really cool with how they do that version, but. Um, this is obviously trying to create that emphasis on this great big one event. And it, it, it's quite effective. Not as effective as Last Waltz. Sure. But I think... No, but it seems like you really enjoyed it, though. It was good. It was good. Yeah. I watched it on my projector. So nice. Nice. So I had a real a authentic music experience because oh, I missed excellent. out on seeing The Last Waltz in the cinemas. Yeah, that's a shame. That was last week, wasn't it? Yes. Ah, damn it. What was I doing Friday? I can't even remember. But no, it's been a crazy week for all. Absolutely. Now, Zeke. Yes. I suppose. I mean, we 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 teased it a little bit. We we're gonna go into it now instead yeah. of a, I guess a traditional career update. I think we play a game instead. A game. A game. Dare uh, I there's say. a there's a murder afoot. Yeah. So actually, I think it makes a lot of sense to do this now because this in no way spoils Glass Onion. Mm-hmm. Um, we thought it'd be fun to uh, basically bounce off each other ideas for uh, ten actors mm-hmm. who we would love to see in a future Knives Out film. It's kind of become that thing now where it's like, what's going to be the next roster? Which is really exciting for the next mystery. So I've written down 10. I'm guessing you've written down your 10. I have, indeed. Yeah. So, um, 
So do you want to go back and forth? Starting we, with... we can go back and forth. Um, I, I, I kind of wrote mine in a particular order with, with really just the first two being like the two that I desperately want to see okay. in the next film. But but the order is kind of irrelevant. Okay. So I, I can start. Um, I'm going to start with Alana Haim. Of course, did a wonderful job uh, much more recently mm-hmm. in Licorice Pizza. Almost forgot the name for a second. <laughs> that's a good choice. No, that's a really good. I choice. just I don't see her anywhere else. It just kind of feels like she did that one film. She did a fantastic job, and it's like okay, wh- wh- where is she? Where are these other? Wh- when are these other films coming out? And I would love to see her work as part of a larger ensemble. Cool. So that'll be my first pick. How about you, Zeke? Um, I'll go with Tilda Swinton. Ooh, very nice. Um, definitely in the vein of sort of what Jamie Lee Curtis did in the first one. Yeah, that sort of character. So I've done a good age mix. Oh, um, good, good. Because yeah, I hope mine's not too tunnel visioned. Yeah, um, but that's a good. That's start. all right because it's like you said. You actually said before the show started, you were talking about you don't want to try and pick people that are running hot like an Anna Taylor Joy, which I actually agree with that sort of point. Yeah, I don't know I, if I've I, fully followed it. But, oh, okay. <laughs> um, I agree with the point you're trying to make with it. Yeah, I, I did. Of, I did write down four names that. In my head, are like almost too obvious. But if they come up in your list, then that that's totally fine. Because yeah. I think I'm almost putting them in the not include list because I would love to see them in it. Yeah. But I think everyone else around the world would love to see them as well. I think Tilda's really good at um, having that balance between comedy and seriousness. She's yes. such a unique presence on screen mm. that she sits in that perfect realm of the Jamie Lee Curtis cross. Um, God, how am I blanking on this? Who's the Australian? The, oh, um, we always now, talk about. Now, I know now. Now, <laughs> Mira's wedding. God damn it! No, <laughs> Tony Collette. Tony, Tony Collette. Collette my I know. God. I know. I'm so I sorry, Tony. But I knew. I knew exactly who you were talking about because they yeah. both have a similar energy. Bit like, kooky. Yeah, kooky, feisty women. Mm-hmm. Big, big range. Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. Exactly. It kind of fits both those. Those. Mm-hmm. And I, of course, I forgive her in like French Dispatch, where like even that yes. like smaller role she has in that film. There's a bit of a range there with her delivery. And, of course, she's coming. She's in Tar coming up very soon. So. Yes. Great, great choice. My next one, I feel like this might be one you put in. I put in Olivia Coleman. I didn't do Olivia Coleman. Oh, I just like, come That's a good on. Choice. That's a really come good choice. on, we got to see That's Olivia Coleman. obvious Cole. choice, isn't it? She's <laughs> just like, she is the the person least likely to be in the, in a Hollywood film with, with no ego whatsoever. Because that's part of it as well. You need to pick people. I mean, like, I feel like Daniel Craig, someone you wouldn't have expected to work in, as part of an ensemble, but mm-hmm. works delightfully. Yeah. And I think even, like, Edward Norton in Glass Onion, like, that's not a name you're like, oh, well, he will easily just fit in the background of an ensemble. Mm-hmm. And so there's some surprises, but at the same time, there are, like, careful picks there. And I think Olivia Coleman is, like, the perfect pick for... She's going to perfectly blend into the ensemble, but give, like, that that extra level of it where it's like I'm going to watch the film just for her that sort of kind of like Catherine Hahn in Glass Onion mm-hmm. a bit where it's you know she can definitely fit into the ensemble but she's always going to be doing things even in the background where you're just always watching her and she's got a tone to it and mm-hmm. so I've, I'm, I'm excited about the potential of Olivia Coleman. Mm. how about you Z what's your next pick I'm going to go Florence Pugh ah <laughs> very good that was in my do not include list yeah but I'll put it in <laughs> but she, it's of course of course yeah we've got to put Florence Pugh in there yeah I think Florence Pugh's <laughs> range is insane oh yeah um, I, again with the where, where you could 
you could have her play any kind of character. And she's a good young... I want to avoid having too many young people. Yeah, exactly. Because it's... I think the the one strength of both of the films, mm. not to give too much away, is they have a good range of age. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, the original Knives Out especially. I think... I, I mean, yeah. you literally got, like, kind of plain teenage boys in there to 85-year-old man. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that yeah. was that was when I I threw in there. No, and very I, good. Obviously, Hollywood. what is she, is she's the most active, one of the most active people. Yeah, she's, she's in Hollywood. Yeah, well, and, so and trying Taylor to get... Joy both working every Ooh. second of their lives at the moment. So yeah, but like I said, it's like I almost didn't include them because like I would love to see them in there, mm-hmm. but I think it's like that's actually a very high chance of that are happening. I think we'll, so. We'll see. We'll see. But um, I would love to see Florence Pugh in there as well. Uh, my next one is Willem Dafoe. It's a fantastic <laughs> choice. That's just a fun one. Yeah, you could do anything with him. Anything you want. Yeah. And it'll be funny. It'll be good. Yeah. I don't know, like, in terms of the level of importance. I mean, he's he's a background character in Wes Anderson films, so he doesn't need to be your lead. He doesn't need to be Christopher Plummer. Mm-hmm. But it's like you could go either way. You can make him the protagonist or the killer or just, like the guy in the background in the glass onion smoking smoking a joint. He could play any number of those roles. So I've, that would be my next pick. What about you, Zeke? Andrew Garfield. Ooh, delightful. Andrew Garfield. <laughs> I really liked him in Tick, Tick, Boom. Yeah, yeah. Um. And look, I said what I said about that Spider-Man movie, but it was nice to see him back. It's Sure. I think something about Andrew... I think Andrew hasn't been given a lot of... In a post... Amazing Spider-Man world hasn't been granted nearly as many opportunities, I think, as he probably right. deserves. I feel like an ensemble film like a, a Knives Out mystery mm. is a good... And to be honest, if it wasn't the... Uh, it, it would go both ways, because we're talking about a Knives Out third movie here. Yeah. But we could quite easily be like, oh, well, a murder on the Orient Express, like in that sort of frame. Mm. Sort of. I think he would suit really well in an ensemble. Yeah. Um, just as, you know, he's getting a bit older. Well, he's probably in the late 30s, early 40s. Good good character, I think, that could... Well, even comparing to that Spider-Man movie, it's like he almost shines out because he's sort of actively taking the back seat in terms mm. of he understands people are there either for Tom, because he's the new one, or... Um, Toby, because to- Or Tobey Maguire, because he's like the OG for a lot of yeah. people. And he's sort of wedged in the middle there with easily the worst of the films. Mm-hmm. So him kind of leaning into that is almost what made him shine. Yeah. So if he brings that same energy to a Knives Out film, then then it will, it will work, or just the same. Yeah. Some with you, especially after. I mean, you're right uh, with the social network. It's like, oh my god, this guy's gonna have the career of a lifetime. And yeah. He's been in some fantastic films. I mean, you know, Hacksaw Ridge and whatnot. But you're right. I just think that there's some. He just isn't in as many films as you think someone of that caliber. Yeah. Would be in, but I love that choice a lot. Number seven. Well, I. Number seven going down. I, I shouldn't be numbering these, but I put Lucas Hedges in there. That's a just, good choice. Just he's around. He's in plenty of that's things. An ex- that's an accessible choice. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's a very safe choice. Yeah. I don't have any like overly particular love for Lucas Hedges in particular. I just think he's great in a lot of the stuff that he's in, and I think cool. he would work. Jeffrey Wright. <laughs> now this might nice. be too late to the party for Port for Jeffrey because. Following the Batman, I think he'll be getting a lot of big-time offers. But I think a Knives Out film where even if he takes on a role, yep. and I don't know if this is typecasting, but if he takes on a Lakeith Stanfield kind of role oh, I from see. the first film, yep. the sort of counter 
counter um counterway to Blanc's like to Blanc's kind of overhyperness. But you is could the word easily make what I would push for is I reckon Wright could be a really good murderer, a really good mm. antagonist of the film. Um, you got to you got to utilize his voice, yeah, somehow. Yeah. Even if he could, even if he is the murderer, he does like a big monologue at the end of the film. Yeah, you got to utilize. I think he's that still voice. accessible enough. I don't think um, he's that like active. I think he's Batman. I think it's he's. Well, really how busy is really he going to be in future Batman? Like, I know they're going to make another Robert Pattinson one, but yeah, how busy is he really going to be with those films? It's true. It's no, true. I think that's a great choice. Thank you. Yeah. Well, the next one, and I swear to God, this the, the considering the names you just mentioned, I swear to God, this is the next one on my list. I'm not jumping ahead. Daniel Coulier would love to see him. I was going to put Coulier. Nice. I was going to put Coulier. Did you not? I did not. Oh, well, there you go. Well, see, we're, 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 we're both scraping at the edges mm. of each other's corners and finding different answers, sneaking them in, but... I, I think he would just bring a, a great energy to it. And and almost like you said with Lakeith Stanfield, it's almost like they've been in quite a few films together now. So it would be a nice sort of reverse role to include that. But yeah. All right. What, what about your next one? Paul Giamatti. <laughs> That's great. That might be my favorite one so far. You said that's genius. I think it's the dryness. It's his range is really underrated. Yeah. Um, and I think he would sit where I see him is he could go both ways. He could be the mm. the Batista of the film, sure, um, or he could be the Michael Shannon, right? Kind of <laughs> in that range um, where he has the menace of Shannon in the first yeah, film, but the, there's like a weird sense of controlledness to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, or he could just be like the absurd sideways character. Who's yeah, like, I know the drunkard. <laughs> <laughs> No, and I he's love just such that a, choice. I love, and clearly Hollywood loves how just non-conventional looking he is. Yeah. He's such a good, like, pick for that. No, I, it's such a, an odd choice out. You're right. Yeah. So I, I can totally see and that. Accessible, too. <laughs> I mean, great. Kate Hudson's in this film. <laughs> Can we just acknowledge? <laughs> when was the last time you saw Kate Hudson? Oh my god! She, oh, she was in that Sia movie that no one ever dare speak its name again. <laughs> That's, so she probably gained a bit of a reputation back mm. with with Glass Onion. My next one is Daniel Radcliffe. That's a good choice. I think he would be great in a Knives Out film. That's a great choice. He's he's allowed to be super funny, but I. You know what? I'm trying to think. When's the last, like, serious, serious role he's taken? I know he did some horror stuff. He got, like, horns, horns. and whatnot. I was thinking But horns. how, like, were those, like... There was a level horns. of absurdism to those films as well. A lot of absurdism. Yeah. He was really funny. I Honestly, in The Lost City, yeah, that Sandra yeah. Bullock, Channing Tatum film, and he's the antagonist, he's really funny in it. Yeah, well, he's... I think of that and, like, Now You See Me too. Like, he's just kind of, like, funny in those films. Yeah. And that, that, frankly, that's really all you need to be in a Knives Out film is funny. Well, we're going to talk about Ed Norton in, sure. in the second half of the show. Sure. Sort of that. Um. Okay, that's a good choice. I'm yeah. going to go with... Oh, sorry. No, 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 you're, you're up. Okay. You're up. Um, okay, I'll go with Colin Farrell. Ooh, I like it. You can do anything with him. Yeah. He literally <laughs> can do anything. It's Colin Farrell. <laughs> it's like, do what you want. Kill him. He could be the one who Kill dies. Him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the, he, like he just he's... dies at the start. 
I just think it's like he'd be yeah he'd be a really I love good... you could do anything you want with him kill him <laughs> that's a good quote yeah <laughs> that's a good pick I like that one as well yeah. I gotta say Zeke for, for how last second I asked you to write up a list yeah practically as you're walking here to do the yeah. podcast your list has been immaculate so thank far you. thank you for how last second you put it up this is incredible my next choice and I, I don't know how a recency bias plays into this, but also she is a living legend. Michelle Yeoh, I think, would be quite fun. That's a good one. In a Knives Out film. I mean, she's doing a Witcher spin-off thing now. She's in the next few Avatars. If those are gonna, if, if Way of Water is going to make enough money to <laughs> to warrant sequels. I mean, they've already shot it. They have to. have to. But I, I think she'll be a great fit. And, and yeah, you could sort of put her in like a Catherine Hahn position where maybe maybe downplay her like her martial arts skills mm. or or utilize them either way anyway i think that'd be a fun choice no that's fair what about you zeke i've got aquafina oh nice <laughs> that's good um but i put aquafina in the um so obviously aquafina comedy base very can hit those points but obviously you know her performance in the farewell shows there is that very maturity true. there yes um and when you see that, you're like, okay, well, what do you do with this? Well, I, for me, I see her in Leanna Diamas. She is the... Oh, I could have been... Oh, wait, duh, she's in Knives Out. <laughs> That's how um, good her performance is, is I thought it was someone else playing her Knives Out. But I, so I put her in that company of Leanna Diamas and... I'm sorry, I am blanking on the... Oh, Janelle Monáe. Oh, role. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Blanc clearly has the female counterpart if, who's right. really the protagonist of the film yes yes um yeah, there's Blanc and then there's a real protagonist of the respective films yeah and then it's obviously Monet and, and Diamas mm. in each film respectively yeah she sits in that category for me mm. she's the f- because at the, you know at the time Diamas was getting a little bit of traction but I think that was one of the films that really pulled up her stocks and for me that was like holy holy hell who is this woman yeah because <laughs> i hadn't seen blade runner at that point either so there's that and for me i, I can't say i'm familiar with monet's work mm. to this point um excessively so i think the kind of fun but also um, malicious side the that putting in the putting this protagonist in this really dangerous scenario right. um in both films um, for different reasons, mm. um, I think Aquafina could play that role yeah. really well. No, that's a really good pick, and it's still comedic because both of them still have like are both given opportunities to have funny moments. Like yeah. Diana's oh, throwing up at, yeah, yeah. at <laughs> random points. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's a lot of meat. Yeah, you know, we'll talk that, about that role. You know, with the second half of the show, what Monet gets up to. Yeah, no, so, very, very exciting. My next one, I've only got a few left. And we mentioned his name already. Robin Patterson. I would I think could work. Yeah, I wanted to, but I didn't I didn't pull the trigger. It's um, I, I think that's fair enough. I, I I'm trying to think I'm trying to think of ensemble cast or roles that he's been in. He's usually obviously a protagonist or you know, pretty second lead, you know, look at something like Tenet. Um obviously he's in Harry Potter and he sort of had his memorable thing. I I don't really I can't think of anything on the top of my head. Robert Patterson is part of like a big ensemble, almost mm. in the background. So that that one I'm more curious about than anything. But I wouldn't be upset if that didn't happen. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. That's a good choice. I think it's a good choice. I'm gonna go with. 
We go with Anthony Hopkins. Ooh. Um, sort of the Christopher Plummer role. Is this role the Christopher or? Plummer role? Yeah, it is the Christopher Plummer <laughs> kind of role. Obviously, it totally is context-based. You know, we've got a much younger cast for Glass Onion yeah. that we're talking about in terms of... And the narrative doesn't centre around. But it really... So it totally will be dependent on what the story is. But sure. I think Hopkins... I mean, you can just put him in there. You're watching him in Amistad, and he does this massive... Well, probably the the, the highlight scene of that film is this nearly eight-minute monologue wow. by just Hopkins as a legal... And you were just blown away. You're like, wow, this man. Um, he could do something like that. Yeah. You know? And maybe if... I don't think I'll ever do another old elderly person dying. No. You know what you could narrative. do? You can do the Frank Oz role, where he just like reads the will. Yeah. And he's in it for five minutes. You could do that as well. Yeah. With him. Yeah. Maybe that's the route you go. Um, but that was my pick. Yeah, no, that's a great pick. But I it was it was that. a real torn between Hopkins and maybe someone along the line. You could go any route, couldn't you? Um, mm. with someone like Hopkins or Judy Dench. Yeah, yeah, place. yeah. Okay, I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, well, my last two, digging into the Breaking Bad Better Call Saul well here. Next one has to be Ray Seahorn. Holy shit. If Ray Seahorn showed up in Knives Out, I would, I would love it. She's just phenomenal. We'll see more of her in this new Apple Vince Gilligan show that's been made. We shall see. What, what's your second to last choice? I don't know if this is in any particular order for you or not. Uh, it isn't in any particular order. Okay. okay. Um, round it off, Jessica Chastain. Nice. Good. Kind Oscar of a, winner from last Oscar year. winner. Yeah. Um, I think... To be honest, she's just a very... She would be a very fun character mm. in there. And it's it's sort of like, how does everyone get brought together? And, and we'll talk about um, how effective that is in this second film. Um, but it really depends on... It's all context-driven. But I think sure. she's a really good person to sort of have in there as a, a more even-keel kind of character. Mm. Just add a bit of more... Bit more spice, bit more spice to this curry <laughs> that we've concocted. I know. There's there we no go. It was fun. Curry. Have another game in a while. Yeah. Oh, well, I still got still got one more left. Oh, we got one more. I know. This is my tenth pick here, and I and I will say that um, some of the other names, including Florence Pugh and Anya Taylor Joy, I elected to not put in the list. Include Thomason McKenzie and Eliza Scanlon. I was like, I'm not going to. Like you said, they're all sort of in that same age bracket. So I kind of wanted to push those off to the side. My final one. This is one I literally messaged Ryan Johnson on Instagram the other day I'm really to kidding. ask him to please make this a reality. I want Anna Gunn in the third Knives Out film. Okay. Now, here's why. Anna Gunn won two Emmys for her role on Breaking Bad. The only two episodes in which she was directed by Ryan Johnson. So, Ryan Johnson almost, I'm not going to say gave her those two Emmys, but obviously was very instrumental in both episodes in which she won That's her two choice. Emmys. And I don't That's think anyone Skylar, has, right? Skylar, yeah. yeah. I don't think anyone's really like talked about that. So I well, would to be honest, love so to I'm see blanking, them work I'm together blanking again. on what's Anna Gunn done since Breaking Bad. Has she been uh, She was in like Sully. <laughs> she's like she was she's like on the Sully. panel in Sully. But other than that, I'm not too sure. I know she was in like Deadwood, but I think that predates Breaking Bad. It does, yeah. yeah. So I'll tell you what. If you if you gave me yeah, if you gave me Brian Cranston, I wouldn't. I wouldn't <laughs> complain. Even if you gave me Aaron Paul, yeah, Aaron Paul, that's a good one as well. A lot, be- a lot of them would be good. 
Giancarlo Esposito. You know what I mean? Like, that's some, a good one. Yeah, it totally depends on where we're going. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, write the story first, cast for that. But I generally, I messaged Ryan Johnson the other day on, on Instagram. And I said, please cast Anna Gunn in Knives Out Three. <laughs> I said, you gave her the two Emmys. Time, time to give her the Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed our lists, viewers, listeners. Yeah, that was fun. Very fun. Beautiful. Well, I guess it's time for us to jump into our film of the week, Jake. But what are we watching? This week in the show, Zeke, we're watching Glass, Onion, a Knives Out mystery. Who's that? Benoit Blanc, the detective? Mr. Prompt, I cannot overstate my gratitude to be here. When's the murder mystery start? I've invited you all to my island. Hi. Because tonight, a murder will be committed. My murder. Once you're dead... Will we still be able to talk to you? Yeah, I'm not playing dead the whole weekend, dude. Well, this is truly delightful. Across the island, I've hidden clues. You will have to closely observe each other. If anyone can name the killer, that person wins our game. Any questions? Allie Barry, uh, that has a kick. Oh my God, what happened? Oh, holy shit! Ladies and gentlemen, there's been a murder, and the killer is in plain sight. For at least one person, this is not a game. I must insist that nobody touch the body. Jeez, detective, who killed the party? I need to find a motive for murder. Everyone would stab a friend in the back to hold on to this rich bastard. Ooh, 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 killed it. You're all friends. Why would anyone commit murder? Are we even going to talk about the elephant in the room? Am I the elephant? Yeah, you're the elephant. You're not that bad. World-famous detective Benoit Blanc heads to Greece to peel back the layers of a mystery surrounding a tech billionaire and his eclectic crew of disruptors. Oh. Are they really disruptors, Zeke? <laughs> Okay. Glass Onion. Ryan Johnson. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's favourite director. Yes, let's go. Offensive. I reckon top five directors for me. No, Seriously? No, no word of a lie. Yeah. Wowzers. Wouldn't go that far. I think he's, I think he's a perfectly competent director who was given mm. a terrible script. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, is what it is. I really don't See, care. He, he gave himself his own script. <laughs> I've become incredibly... <laughs> exhausted with the star wars debate and much like i'm annoyed that it's like come up again recently not only because of this film but it's the five-year anniversary of the last jedi i think it's just the for me it's honestly it's after i decide after watching episode nine on episode 49 of this show yes um i was like yeah i'm just not going to acknowledge those three films exist sure and when you don't do that, suddenly you're not annoyed by The Last Jedi. Because, <laughs> to be honest, The Last Jedi is ten times the film that the, the that last, whatever that film's... I don't know what it's called. I don't even know what the... Yeah. The Rise of Skywalker. Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm kind of with you on that. Look, I'm... I've At this um, point, I'm... Okay, I understand. I love The Last Jedi. I, a lot of people hate The Last Jedi. And I get a lot of the, the reasoning. And there is a generally a consistent consensus and, and thought process to why people hate The Last Jedi. Mm-hmm. Some of them more broad than... Some people just literally hate every decision that's ever made in that film. Yeah. But the other thing as well is... I can, I can accept that, 
But I can't accept someone telling me that Rise of Skywalker is better than Last of the Jedi. Not. Like, that's, that's like, okay, well, you clearly incorrect. just don't know anything about film. I'm sorry. Yeah. Or script writing or anything like that. Yeah. So, it ends up becoming, yeah, <laughs> a pretty enjoyable experience when you just go, I don't need knowledge if three films exist. But we're not talking about that. We're no, talking we're about The Glass Onion. Uh, obviously, first... Uh, First thoughts, Jake. First thoughts. Give, mm. give them to me. Okay. So, like I said, I've seen this twice now. I saw it last month in cinemas. I think it's a crime that's only played in cinemas for a week. This is such a... You have to watch this film with people, I feel like. I mean, it's not essential, but, like, it, it almost kind of changes the the feeling behind it. Because, I mm. mean, Ryan Johnson, he's, for, for everything that I praise him for, and, and I this is just part of his charm to me, but I think a lot of people get annoyed, is that... I think a lot of his films are just inherently sillier than people would rather them be. There's quite a bit of silliness. And I even said it when I first saw it. There's quite a few soap opera-isms in, in Glass Onion that I'm more than happy to look past because, again, there's there's like a silliness to it that I know are going to piss a lot of people off. Um, but that being said, I just thought it was very enjoyable. I loved sort of the different take, but sort of similar approach that the first film does in terms of its commentary on um, in the first film it was about the differences between people who are owed and what or what they feel they are owed versus what is earned in terms of the inheritance thing with the the how am I forgetting the name of the family in okay. the first film from from Frombry I think that's it Frombry Frombry yeah Frombies yeah 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 um, and then for here, it's a bit more of like a... There's a more digital angle to it, of course, with the... So it's more of like a tech billionaire side and the entrepreneurs. So there is a bit more of that individualism, but then there's also a codependency amongst all those. Now, I don't want to get into spoilers just yet, but I loved all of that, even if a lot of it was on the nose. I get that. Um, I thought the mystery was awesome. And I think the structure of it is shockingly different to the first one mm-hmm. um, which I think freshens it up in a fun way but makes it I think a tinge less rewatchable than the first one but well, I, I'm dying to hear your thoughts so what, what's your takeaway yeah look um, straight off the bat mm. um, things that, that, that struck out for me I, I was thought the way they integrated the global pandemic of the last couple mm. of years into the narrative and it actually sets the the precedent for the story the call to the action and 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 this that and the other yeah um was a very intriguing uh sort of way of going about it sure. and um i didn't dislike that i was like oh that's really clever um the initial thoughts was i thought we were going to get a film that was more akin to a, a Soderbergh. Uh, Ocean's Eleven oh, yeah. from the sort of the <laughs> motifs that we were seeing in the opening part. Um, I think, like you said, from a story plot point of view, it's significantly different mm. in terms of yes, like I said, there is a Blanc is complemented by the female a female protagonist, but the yep. way we achieve it is is drastically different. Mm. Um, I mean, they I, they both are non-linear stories, but it makes a big difference how far you go into a story before showing that it's non-linear and, and how much of the story is, mm. is a flashback versus the same story repeated. And I mean, that's what makes the structure feel so different from the first one. 
I think in terms of a mystery, mm. a mystery slash the way it's structured and our protagonist's sort of goals from a story versus plot point of view, I don't think this film's nearly as effective as the first film. Okay. I think it's... Socratic is, is a very sort of astute way of, of mm. pointing it out. I think some of the story beats... There's a couple of... That are like, there's two examples, at least, that yeah, are very soap opera Where you're like, okay. Very like, was, yeah. <laughs> I can't buy into... I personally think that what he did with the first film was incredibly intelligent as subverting the genre, but also honouring the genre, that perfect balance. Yeah, yeah. And he clearly likes doing this um, sort of metacognitive storytelling where mm. he's it's like oh I'm aware of all the conventions I'm going to flip them on the head but also compliment them or right. find a way to tie it back to go on this big almost instead of it being a linear line it's a big circle that ends up back in a line yeah like which, I, I, which I will say to that point I thought it was so unique watching it in the first one but I've seen interviews of him talking about Glass Onion and he talks about the way he sees it like these classic Agatha Christie mysteries the way he sees it, she was doing that herself long before anyone else was doing it. Almost mm. pioneering the mystery genre, but then subverting expectations and breaking tropes herself, which I just frankly wasn't aware that, that that's how a lot of those older mystery films mm. were. So that's why him going into Knives Down a Glass Onion, making it super contemporary, he's like, well, those mystery films were contemporary to their times yeah. and broke their own conventions. So Brian Johnson would be the first person to tell you that what he's doing with these films isn't new which I was shocked by but nevertheless I thought it was done fantastically yeah I, I and to be honest I think the though the casting was good I mm. think the ensemble was weak into and okay and not in the sense that the performances were poor I thought all the performances were perfectly fine very well cast like Dave Bautista was very well cast Kate Hudson's very well cast um Catherine Hahn's very well like they, they, mm. they, they're, they're cast appropriately and they all play sure. their roles well yeah but the level I wasn't left believing anyone was the villain except the person I thought in the first place which is not the feeling I got in Knives Out when I legitimately didn't know Mm. who did it who done it right um whereas this film I feel isn't as intelligent as it maybe could be mm. or um maybe it not even could be just it's the script isn't nearly as as clever in terms of motives um and this could be a reflection of the performances or the characters constructed. I think having a smaller car, a smaller ensemble mm. too, really shows potentially where more of the problems arise from. Um, I do like. I I think something exonerates what I'm my point and sort of can be used in counter, which mm. is the dialogue Blanc does in the final part that sort of reveals all of the information, like it does in the first one. Right. Where, you know, we talk about how sort of I don't, I don't want to it's tough to not spoil things yeah 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 you know we'll, who done we'll, it we'll get into it right away I think but um this is spoilers <laughs> yeah well I guess we'll just start spoiling the film now but, for, but so to talk, finish talk, the point before yes. I um, go into spoilers I think the film isn't as tight knit 
or I think by the way that the protagonist is revealed to us, that's because mm. Blanc pretty much is the protagonist to the midpoint, basically, because we don't have a protagonist other than Blanc. Yeah, which, that's another big reason why the structure feels different in this film. Whereas Blanc is actually and comes off as an antagonist because in in the part where in- Diamas thinks she's killed Plummer's character. And she's trying to hide yeah. evidence. He's he's the threat to her. Yeah. Exactly. And that that's almost what felt like the subversion of expectation in the first film. You spent a, a big part of the film with him being the antagonist and Ana Diamas being the pro- protagonist. And obviously you can't do that a second time because we know Blanc's a good guy. We sure. know he's the protagonist. He believes in truth and found the truth by the end of the, the film and was there to help Diamas mm. in the end. So you... you you position him as the protagonist in the first half of the film is totally reasonable. Um, uh, I think his introduction's really cool. I love the little Hugh Grant cameo. <laughs> to be the, honest, the, what and a- th- this tells you what I know in my original notes from last month. I said that he cameoed as his cleaner. I was like, oh, Jake. Jake, you idiot. <laughs> That's someone, I tell you. Honestly, Guy Ritchie, Guy Ritchie should just send over his casting lists for his films, that could be your Knives Out cast in its there own you right, go. to be honest. Because <laughs> Hugh Grant in a Knives Out film, I'd be here for. Yeah. But we won't see it now, because why would he be in a mystery? Like, yeah, I know. Such a shame. Um, unless Blanc has to bring his partner to the third mystery. Yeah. And what does, Colin, what does Hugh Grant even do? Is he like a detective too, or is he just like his roomie? Yeah, like, I, w- I want to know what he's occupation is yeah. that's what I want to do because um, what's well, funny because they confirmed at the start of the year that that Benoit Blanc is gay and I watched this entire film and just straight up didn't connect the dots in that scene I was like oh so he is that's his partner yeah so it's just his partner yeah oh okay cool and I was like oh I didn't even like <laughs> connect that <laughs> it makes sense now I suppose why but, would I, did they say that before the movie or was that as a result he said that ages that? ago like at the start and I, I remember reading it being like oh that's a weird like thing to announce out of nowhere like oh Dumbledore's gay oh Benoit Blanc's gay it was like oh it's it's kind of in the movie very it's it's snuck okay. in there but it's not in there in the first one no there's no, no. There's no okay. well I think I think Ryan Johnson he said like when they made the first one he kind of got that sense of like I kind of feel like he is gay like just from the writing the character and Daniel Craig playing the character and yeah. and I guess I wanted to sort of sneak it in as canon for the second one yeah I guess his attire in this film definitely gives it away. <laughs> oh, it's great. The neck chiefs. And... I love it so much. Um, but... and, a, and another dynamic, like you said, to the relationship between sort of like the... It's not... You can't say the final girl. This isn't Wes Craven subverting your expectations of a slasher. But, yeah, kind of the sense of there is that, that female protagonist in each of these films that he is sort of drawn to. And it's mm. like that kind of adds an extra layer to those relationships too. For sure. Which I For like. Sure. It, um, it, in a way, it subverts the James Bond archetype, doesn't it? Sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, well, I, I I think for me, it's, I think, yeah, just, it wasn't as compelling because, like I said, the introduction to our female protagonist by the midpoint of the film, it ended up being quite, um, diff- it felt like we halted the action. Right. Just to be like, like you said, to introduce this Socratic device of, um, you know, are we, are we, we're in spoiler territory. Yeah, I'd say we're yeah. in spoiler territory. Um, I mean, for me, that that was the first, like... And again, I was never thrown off by it, but it's like, this is very soap opery to just have a twin sister twin introduced sister. halfway through the film. Um, 
I think having seen it, you know, twice now and really reflecting on the story, I'm like, I love the way it all plays out. But it is so ballsy to make your entire first half of the film because it's not even about who your protagonist is so much of how much information do the characters in the story have compared to how much you, the audience, have. Mm. And when you look at the first one, it's very quick. It's very quick when you find out what Ana de Armas's supposed role was, or at least what she thinks her own role was. And now that she's your protagonist, you're following the story with her and learning things mm. alongside her. And in this film, if we're going to say Benoit Blanc's our protagonist for the first half, he knows way more about what's at stake and what the mystery is before the audience does until the end. And it, it I think it's really cool in the moment to have, like, oh my God, now we're going to relive this whole adventure and you know, with all this different context added to it and we're going to basically reestablish all the motives because now it's not motives against Miles, it's motives against her, yeah. against Andy. Um, you know, not Helen, Andy, or the twins. Yeah. We, know, we know what we're talking about. <laughs> but I mean, that's really cool in the moment. But I think that's why I say it's a, it's a smidge less rewatchable because there is that, that extra layer of rewatching the film yeah, there's, there's cool little things in there sprinkled of like, oh, okay, that connects to this and this connects to that. That's cool. But it's almost like, okay, now I'm waiting for the next beat in the story to come because it feels mm. like so much of this film is slowly laying, layering things into the narrative. I don't think it's nearly as intelligent. But like I said, it's the, the thing that exonerates it is the Blanc um, roasting mm. of Miles's just stupidity yeah. cliches <laughs> it's almost it's this film that's ripe with cliches and contrivances and then Blanc comes in and and undoes it with the oh you're the most cliche obvious person for mm. it and I oh, just to me it's it's things like the the napkin MacGuffin right where I'm sitting there going yeah he would keep it but yep. then for it to be undone so quickly or the introduction there are some good setup and payoffs that i really like mm. the mona lisa um yeah. setup payoff i'm a big fan of that and i'm i am a big fan of actually how he comes undone right in an unconventional way yeah yeah and the, and all of those things are sort of laid throughout where you have ben Blanc who says i'm not batman i can i can figure things out for you but i, I i'm not i'm not the police yeah, I can't arrest this man. Um, so you know, in case the one physical piece of evidence is just burnt on the spot, it's like, well, like I can't do anything about that. Yes. But then it subverts that, not subverts, but it calls back to uh, Miles's own monologue about how disruptors are people who break things. Yeah, and it's like, well, all these you know entrepreneurs that are just sort of suckling up to the entrepreneur that's one step ahead of them and it's all about that codependency. Yeah. Is that really disruption? Or is it when Helen starts literally breaking things? Is that what the disruption is? Yeah. Which it is, is what the film I've been saying. So there's all of those things sort of planted around. But I also understand, because I've actually talked to quite a few people. So obviously Kirsty's in New Zealand right now and, and I, I, she had no idea that we'll win this film for the podcast. They sure. seen it. She messaged me this morning like, oh yeah, we we're watching this film last night. It's called Glass Onion had no idea it was connected to Knives Out at all. Um, and she said a lot of her family were just kind of bored, which is interesting because I don't think... If you're not hooked by the filmmaking the first half, when it's taking this long to get to the mm. the mystery party game, which for a long time we think that's what's going to be the main intrigue. It's like, why is it taking 45 minutes to get to this murder mystery? I agree. 
unless you have the knowledge that there's actually so much more happening we need to be paying attention to before yeah. that happens. So I, I think, get it, I get it. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things that... And it's interesting, because that's a really interesting point, because, yeah, that they set up this murder mystery where you think a murder's going to be committed, but it won't go the way it yeah. con- was conventionally planned. I mean, the thing you would think is, oh, Miles is actually going to die yeah. in this fake murder mystery. Thing. Yeah. That's, like, the very clear, this is what it's all leading up to, until to, that's completely subverted. Yeah, and at that point, you go, well no one is the bad guy except Miles here. Like, mm-hmm. I, to me, I realistically couldn't buy anyone in this ensemble that was the antagonist of right. Miles. That could Whereas commit a murder. They set up, in the original Knives Out, they set up Jamie Lee Curtis's character as this matriarch that's not getting it. Chris Evans doesn't come in until the second act of the film. Mm. Um, and, you know, you've got Michael Shannon in there, and I'm, I'm forgetting there's... There are realistic people, basically all of the older people, are all realistic right. suspects. And yeah, eventually they start to fall away and fall away, but then the subversion comes with... And I think that that's because Diamas is really is the front and centre of that story. Mm. Because we follow her journey and Blanc is there to kind of complement it. Yeah. But it, it switches. It switches from her like trying to hide evidence to oh Chris Evans is offering this olive branch so yeah. oh well he's clearly not maybe they're doing it and know, a, the- a lot of what that does is is make you drop your guard yeah because on your first time watching Knives Out you spend a lot of the film not thinking about the mystery because in your head it's already answered yeah and now now the, the narrative thrust is can she cover up her tracks from the world's greatest detective yeah and it makes you drop your guard for a big chunk of the and, film. And there's a, there's an irony to that too, because you almost go into a whodunit mystery with your knives out. You're, right. <laughs> all you're doing, you're not really you're watching the movie. You're every analyzing every movement. Yeah. You're trying to stay on top of it. And you know, I could I could bring it back to a film that came out earlier this year. See how they run, where they try and disarm you with humor too. Right. Much like this film does. But it, and or try to challenge conventions of Agatha Christie to the point where they bring Agatha Christie into that right <laughs> related narrative and but it is quite obvious who done it in that film mm. but you it's less so much about the who done it it's more about this cop drama more than anything cop right. comedy drama yeah whereas these films are very much who done it and you, i just don't think you ever move your gaze never moves away from miles in my opinion you're i don't think anyone believed when andy showed up and you don't actually in her first show up that she's going to be the the murderer because right. it's the most obvious give. Sure, I I think what my trick is with watching these films is because you, can, you like you said you kind of have the things that seem obvious where it's like okay well these are the clues that lead to this, but then I'm I'm trying to think like very fourth dimensionally here. Mm. Well, I'm sort of I'm almost like. And I, you know, and in a sense, Ben Yarblung does the same thing in this film, where he dismisses Miles because, of, oh well, it would be too stupid for him to just do it himself. Yeah. And it's like I kind of almost had the same mindset going into this film of trying to overanalyze and double think and triple think and quadruple think that I miss some of the more obvious stuff. So to me, it wasn't that obvious yeah, at all. And that uh, maybe him. it's a commentary, like as Ben Yarblung goes, he goes, "I've pretty much been overthinking this whole time." Yeah. You're really just <laughs> incompetent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and where you know there's actually not many layers to this the irony is in the title again it's like there are really no layers to this glass onion yeah 
it's a transparent window. Yeah. Which and and that's funny because I'm thinking of glass onions like okay well the the glass aspect of like you know it's beautiful and good to look at but it's also very fragile mm. and easily destructible, which I mean the glass onion itself is but then Miles's you know prestige his image his wealth is also or easily yeah. destructible by the end of the film. I just think it's for me it's a weak film to sell if honestly and now I'm thinking macro right okay. This is a franchise, right? We we spent the first half of the show talking about what's the third film's ensemble going to mm. look like. And the first film has such a powerful narrative. It's fun. It's compelling. It twists. It turns. And then it has such a beautiful last shot that just sits in your head. I love the last shot, Knives Out. And it expresses power, and it's just fantastic. Yeah. You know? And... We walk out of that film going, God, I can't wait. But I, for me, I get Kingsman Golden Circle vibes. Okay. I get a film, like, I went into Knives Out, low expectations, was blown away. I found it so much fun. It, it earned its Oscar nods. Mm. Um, and in this film, I was not under... Like, I guess maybe I was a little disappointed. Sure. You know, you've got, you've got Ed Norton, who is... A fun but very one of the he's kind of for me he's like this guy who's very hard to break away from mm. always looking like just the antagonist of the film especially when your company <laughs> no honestly when your company's kate hudson who's basically just taking her almost famous role 25 right. years later <laughs> is basically doing that yeah this airy fairy enigma yeah um who's past her prime i, I know there was um, a bit of a joke with Catherine hard just because of like her WandaVision role of like, oh, well, clearly she's got to be the murderer, but, but there was never, there, never for boring. a Yeah, never, like, never for a second did I think she was going to be She's there. so, to be honest, these characters just don't have, literally, it's that whole thing where, and they go through the book, they're doing, oh, motive and, and what's the motive to yep, kill. Yeah, they're doing Clue. <laughs> um, and you just sort of, you sit there and you go, well, to be honest, and I get it, it's, it's very obviously I think it's meant to be Miles. It's not mm. meant to be that much. We don't really need to add this much information and stuff right, like this. Right. And yeah, they are playing Clue, which is quite funny. Um, I loved all the, the shout-outs to Codenames and Quiplash. Obviously, in, um, Among Us. In my opinion, <laughs> I, maybe this cast really was hindered by the fact it's not a very big cast, not a big ensemble. See, I my instinct that, to that just in general, not necessarily regarding the issue, is the smaller the on, the ensemble, the more focused the film can be. So uh, that kind of surprises me that you think that's the root of it being disappointing compared to the first one. I think it's just because it... Yeah, I guess, but then I don't think a lot happens then if it's being focused, really. I mean, we like you said, you've, brought, you've introduced these Socratic devices, a twin sister mm. coming in impersonating that none of the characters seem to know about too. Like right. when it's revealed, she's the twin sister. And I get it. That could be a testament to their ego. They didn't really notice and know. Yeah. But I how... was surprised. They didn't make it more clear that none of them knew the heart, including miles didn't know the half sister even existed. But I didn't get that impression from Miles. I can believe that Miles might not know that information, but her other friends, Andy's original friends, who were Andy's friends first, didn't sure. know she had an identical twin sister. Mm. And no one mentions it. Like, yeah, I get it. Kate Hudson's character's like dopey and dumb and goes, what? Like, that's fine. Yeah, you can yeah, yeah. play that off. She's so vain that maybe she wouldn't. But you're telling oh, me well, that she, Han Actually, and- she does have the line where she's like, oh, you did mention you had a sister. 
Right. Okay. So they do know about, but just like forgot about her, I suppose. And and like and like they said, there's lines in there that sort of like, oh, okay, I see. Well, because the other one, it's only been two years since the trial, though. Like, oh well, the trial was only a few months prior, but they've known each other what ten years, something like that. The sister wouldn't attend the trial too. Like they wouldn't have two females. (laughs) To me, it felt really. Oh, I just okay. It's a little. That's just a bit ridiculous. And then. I mean, it's f- funny. The Jeremy yeah. Renner hot sauce. Oh yeah, gag. that's a great shot when it's like slowly about to go into her nose when she's playing dead. That's and a fantastic is, I, shot. It is. He's really good at capturing tension at s- some really good moments. Yeah. The use of the dong, though hilarious, the Joseph mm. Gordon Levitt dong, could be used <laughs> for tension, but it really isn't. Like, used. Well, it's used so you can associate the two timelines. So yeah. when you when it's her and Madison Klein in the room and you hear that don you're like oh the power's about to go out yeah so there's little things like that it's time association more than attention building but i think it does it too as well i think little things like her coming undone from drinking is a bit contrite like it's like one of those things where it's like she she says she never drank before yes but it's she doesn't need to drink like no one's going like expect her to drink and she only drinks simply because she's getting flustered and emotional but it's like for me, and then she goes on that big rant because she's intoxicated mm-hmm. or and i guess yeah she does reveal critical information to their their case because of these big rants mm-hmm. but it it does feel a bit like if you were in her position this person that had no confidence going in why would like drinking is always such an easy sort of oh like like that's what i mean by contrived it just pushes the plot forward a little bit just right. to enables oh she's more like andy because she's drinking and it's like okay yeah but then but then you can argue that those moments when that miles gives her a drink and that she feels pressure to drink because that's yeah. what andy would do she, needs she to doesn't drink when she miles hands no no she doesn't so doesn't that's the... that's what i'm saying the pressure could have came from earlier true but even even just like those little things when i didn't catch this the first time but when when helen first meets blanc and says you know when there were kids they used to play rich bitch like they used to like pretend and i was like oh okay so that's how she sort of knows to act like um any andy oh my god i forgot her name um because it almost is like andy was putting on the rich bitch yeah. performance her whole life mm-hmm. so it's like there's little things in there that sort of I, I know it's not the greatest thing to be like, well, this line explains this and this line explains that. It, it, I know like, If you do too many of those, it becomes very lazy. Yeah. I get that. I think that, yeah, to be perfectly honest, and, and like I said, my frustrations with the film, they weren't even frustrations. They were just sort of like, it didn't have, it didn't, I didn't get pulled in. Right. And I watched this in the closest thing to a cinema setting that isn't a cinema. Like, I put it on a projector, <laughs> put the lights out, I was fully invested in it in terms of its experience mm. but i just was like i i can't buy into anyone else really being here and there is a little bit of intrigue that sets the the twin sister thing if i can look past that i'm like okay i'm a little intrigued i didn't hate hate the film or anything right i just think the film is considerably weaker like i said it's it feels like golden circle to me in that sense mm. that i'm like i will watch the third film like i'll watch the third kingsman film yeah but this adi- this second film just doesn't really make me go, mm, I'm really keen for the, the next film. Yeah. I mean, look, if you put a gun to my head, I would probably say I enjoyed the first... I enjoyed Knives Out more than Glass Onion. 
But that being said, I still have a deep appreciation for both of them. And the fact that Glass Onion does try to be quite different, where it, it's, it does you know have these pretty big leaps of differences in terms of its structure yeah in terms of the knowledge you have versus what the characters have in the first half and and the fact that the ending is almost it's not as satisfying as the first one like and we talk about with anadiyama she she gets she gets to keep the house and the inheritance and she really sticks it up to them while in this film it almost feels like um helen has to punch up because the the napkins burnt and <laughs> burnt in the dumbest way too it's just sort of like oh we have to get rid of this napkin somehow oh he's got a lighter so just <laughs> like yeah. why would you hold the well, napkin that, that close <laughs> the, the thing that makes him come undone or at least go to a retrial and it's like you let it get destroyed it's yeah. very literally steals um was it leslie is that the character's name or lionel lionel's idea of why didn't you just burn it and he's like oh i'll burn it now <laughs> And I think the problem that for me it's you got these four characters because the, there only are four real suspects because you can't include whiskey and the right and the um, assistant the um, assistant Peg Peg because well Peg you can, you can com- because Peg is at risk of getting fired when she puts out the birdie statement so it's like she has motivation there and then whiskey's this is another one of those soap opery things is when you first see her flirting with Miles. And Duke is watching. It's like, oh, okay, here we go. It's a bit of an affair. And it ends up being multi-layered because it's like, oh, Duke actually ordered her to do that so that he can get, like, um, time on the news to promote his Twitch channel, which is another thing of this film, all all the references to tweeting and and streaming and shazamming and Mm. all those modernisms that are still in the franchise. I love that. But to be fair, they both have motivations as well. I will give them that. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, that's fair. I I, I had moments. I I did. I mean, I enjoyed the film well mm. enough. But I just, for me, it doesn't. It feels like a step, like a tangential step, sure. rather than a, a step forward. Yeah, like I um, said, I, I appreciate the differences, but gun to my head. I mean, knives out, and and I wanted to give it the benefit of the doubt of more re- giving Glass Onion the benefit of rewatches. But like I said, my second rewatch, a lot of it there's some nice things in there to look out for but ultimately it's like well they do tell the story twice in the movie already so it, it, it's almost like I'm watching it a third and fourth time simultaneously in the yeah. second rewatch <laughs> which yeah. can be like okay let, let's let's move on a little bit yeah I mean I think the pacing of this film's perfectly fine it's two hours twenty minutes it's quite a lengthy yeah. film it's longer but than it's interesting one. if Kirstie and her family have that mindset that it's kind of a little boring Oh, well, she didn't find it boring, but she's a most of her family did find it boring. Mm. But like I said, it's like, well, I wonder how many of them got to the midpoint twist. Yeah. Because I, I wonder how much that shakes up. I mean, it goes in... I'm not going to talk about my highlight scenes yesterday, but my highlight scene is completely to do with the pacing and, and like this idea of intrigue and, and knowing where we're going next, what the mystery is. Mm. I mean, we'll get into that soon. It'll be cool. I... I I think for me, in the, mm. the, the prologue where we've got this conference call of puzzles being solved. Right. And I get it. It's sort of like, it's a testament to Miles with his puzzle guy. Yeah. Basically, he has no intelligence. He just has someone. Yeah, he's doing. someone to, and then he's he, an architect, he's author. It was Gilligan and Flynn, it wasn't it? Introduces, <laughs> it introduces wrote a, the mystery. Yes. And it introduces <laughs> a collection of 
um, characters who think they're smarter than what they actually are. Right. Is essentially what they're trying to show. And it's so funny that before you get revealed how Benoit gets included into the case, mm. that he just takes that little snipe of there were baby pu- children's yes, puzzles. Yes, I literally wrote that down. I uh, love that. Yeah, especially after you realise he didn't even do the puzzles himself. Yeah. <laughs> he just had to throw it in there to dig at him. I think for me... <laughs> That's great. What would be interesting and could have been a potential direction that they took it... Hmm. There's a few missed opportunities in the film. And I do think these are big missed opportunities, is... He does prod Miles quite a bit with negative content. He mm. undoes his murder mystery within twenty seconds. Yep. Like, <laughs> if Miles his like, performance in that removes is so him from this narrative for a period, one way or another, mm. or Benoit is actually put in a position of danger, or com- like a sense that it's interesting you know and it's a different type of film but obviously going out of watching the menu where a bunch of characters go to an island right and over the course of the evening there's a sense of cynicism there okay and power that Mm. obviously ralph Fiennes has you never really feel like miles is inherently in control of any of this narrative right no um it feels like people are codependent on him for like their wider careers but not to the same extent where he controls or puppeteers the events. Yeah, and I he get doesn't it. because he, he might think he's smart enough to do that when he's obviously not. Well, it's the making up of words and stuff. And yeah. there are clever little <laughs> script writing. New, I do like those. And I really yeah. appreciate when Ryan writes stuff like that because it's like that's a really clever way to construct this trying to empower what I think is a very weak antagonist in the first place. Um, and and or at least not well he's weak in terms of the type of person he is yeah i don't know he's just like to me he's he's so clearly the the, he's elon musk yeah (laughs) the timing of the film's release as well is impeccable i think removing blanc from the narrative one way or another or at least removing some of his power Mm. because it never feels like he's not in power right and in fact he gets like i said he gets frustrated with himself at the end when he's like allowed this almost like he's inconvenienced by what was clearly the most basic narrative ever but it's undone by things like everyone being like oh look at look at birdie dancing right it's it's but everyone looks like i feel like characters are a little smarter than that but or the pineapple juice um the allergy i don't know it for me it just doesn't have the same in, maybe intellect's the, the wrong word, but mm. characters that compel me to ask questions or closely analyse. I found myself not really closely analysing because I was like, I felt like Miles was the whodunit in this. Right, right. And in terms of his level on. of orchestration, yeah, because that that's a that's kind of a big part of it too. Is is them him telling them, yeah. oh, he drank out of my drink. And, and then Blanc being like, well, if you, like, ignore what he said, if you're really re- trying to remember back what you saw in that moment, and then him switching the drinks. That was another thing I noticed. In terms of the filmmaking, the way he would cut it, where most of the time he, especially when you revisit the story the second yeah. time, the second half of the film, he would cut it and frame it in a way where a lot of the things are happening and we just don't see them properly. And a good example of this is when Duke's looking through the window and you see, you know, Daniel Craig poke his head out from behind the bush. And when I first watched it, I thought it was strange because then in the second version, Andy would also be in frame, or Helen, I should say, 
would also be in frame when she leans out of the bush. But what I realized rewatching it is you hear the like her crushing a stick. Yeah. I just stepped on your foot demonstrating that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then at that point, she's on the right side of frame. So the film does go out of its way to make sure like the way it cuts and frames things is accurate both mm-hmm. times, with the exception of when Miles swaps the drink, when every time we flash back to it, it's a different take. It's like a different version of him leaving the drink down for Duke to pick it up or him directly passing it to... So it's interesting that's the only time where he like plays different versions of that scenario. Because almost every, even the you know, he goes down to tie his shoelace and then it, yeah. it kind of cuts away from what we know is more dialogue. I especially love when we think that um, this is the other second most soup soap opery thing is, is Helen survives the gunshot with the book in the chest. But um, the thing that I love is when it first happens, we kind of cut to this awkward shot of Daniel Craig like crying. And at this point, we're kind of confused where the emotion's coming from because like, well, he barely knows her. But the second time, we actually see the whole take of him building to that emotion, putting the source in his eyes. I was like, that's just great. Because mm. I remember that feeling awkward the first time and then, oh, that's why it was purposely cut that way so we can reveal the information later. Mm. So in terms of the way he frames it and edits it, there's some interesting stuff there yeah. that he does, which I really yeah. like. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> you got anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, I got some side notes. Um, you, you already mentioned the fact that he makes that dig at Miles for the childish... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's great. But he takes multiple times. Like he, yes. he really he downplays his intellect very quickly. Mm. I think it's interesting because it's, it's sort of like... I get that this case over the ownership of this this very multi-billion dollar company would be very public, mm. but his knowledge of how stupid he thinks Miles is is, is kind of profound from, from right. the get-go. Yeah. Um, and why Miles keeps him is is quite interesting in terms of... I guess he thinks that having... He, he must know something is going on because this person that he killed just showed up to the island as well as Benya Blanc the world's greatest detective so I think even though he says like oh well someone must have invited you as part of the why would you keep him there no because that's why I'm wondering if he's trying to figure out what his move is yeah but until he just kicks him out it could be that hubris thing like he thinks he can outsmart the world's greatest detective because he's that delusional I think that's the only reason you keep a character like that there hmm it's for me that makes no sense why would you want this person that's so good at sleuthing near you when you've recently murdered someone yeah like (laughs) and you know if if he sends Blanc home and Blanc really has no leg to stand on then then the story's over (laughs) the Andy impersonator dies (laughs) I'm trying to think because there's another thing as well in, re- in regards to the timing, I don't think the film goes out of its way to explain it. So, obviously, in, t- in terms of the timing, you have um, Andy is killed, and then afterwards, the, the puzzle boxes are sent out to everyone, and it, one is clearly sent out to Andy that, that Helen finds. Mm. My, I don't think the film goes out of its way to explain it, but I'm guessing that's like almost an alibi yeah. where he sent a box to her to show like, oh, well, I didn't know she was dead then because I just sent her this box. That's what I'm... But then he also has the foresight to know that fifth box that Benio Blanc has 
is probably the one that went to a dead person. So there's a few things like that where I'm like, I'm still trying to figure out exactly the, what the timing the, is on that. Well, the way that they, the simple way that they get around that is, oh, well, it must have got sent out by accident, the prototype. And it's like, but why did the prototype get sent? To oh, block? no, no, there were no prototypes. But he, he thinks that one of the, the group, the four, or he, he says five of them, sent it to Benoit Blanc after they reset the puzzle. So he, the way he explains it is, someone reset the puzzle and then sent it to him. Though, what do you ask the other? Do you want you just ask the group who yeah, sent exactly. him? Who, who, who did that? Him? Yeah. No one answers. Okay, you're lying. See you later. <laughs> like, it is. It is a, a very. That's what I'm talking about when I'm saying like. That's a little contrived, mate. <laughs> yeah. Dropped it two weeks in a row now. Oh my god. Um. Yeah. It's, you just sort of like okay. Well. But I guess you got I mean, to allow look, these things. I mean, a lot of this stuff really doesn't bog it down for me, because I think at the end of the day, I'm and I know this is like a me thing. Is like I I think I pay more attention to like theme than plot sometimes. So I I almost give things that don't make perfect sense a pass as long as it's like thematically relevant. Yeah. Which it is to the whole, you know, Elon Musk is truly an idiot in disguise of money and child equals NFT and <laughs> all the absurdism that comes with that. Yeah. So I think that's sort of where I lean. I, I'll quickly rattle off some Fair. of the other the points that I wrote down, which I think you might find interesting. Uh, when Miles uh, Miles Bron has the big monologue about the Mona Lisa and how it was sort of painted to not, I guess, not leave lines. Yeah. And that the idea is that when you look in the painting, you see a different expression each time. And I think this is a very, this is a very calculated shout out to Knives Out, where the Frombury painting literally changes expression each time we cut to it throughout mm. the film where I think he has a smile at the end when Marta sort of wins and then like a, a frowned face in the midpoint of the film after the will and it literally changes so I think that's almost like a shout out mm. to what the first film does there I love in the flashback Miles looks like Steve Jobs and Tom Cruise in Mag- Magnolia yeah. respectively <laughs> But he I said it was that. based on the Magnolia. Yeah, yeah, that made a lot of sense to me. But the Steve Jobs one, especially, it was the 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 black shirt with the blue jeans, <laughs> turtleneck vibe going on. Um, some of the other cameos we didn't even mention. Ethan Hawke shows up in the film. It's just crazy. He's not credited <laughs> or anything. I was, that was Ethan Hawke. Yeah, that's a few ages. To what a out. waste of Ethan Hawke. <laughs> Apparently, he was just in Greece shooting mid, uh, Moon Knight. And that's the only reason he was in the film, is he was literally just there. What a waste. You could have put Ethan Hawke in a whole different Knives Out. That would have been a great one. I was, that would have been on that, my list. That should have been on the list, yeah. No, it was going to be on my list. I was like... And then I saw him in the film and I went... <laughs> Jeez. That was great. It wasn't until he started like speaking. I was like, oh my God, that really is him. Yeah. I just could not tell for, for ages... The Serena Williams one is pretty funny as well. Yeah, it's See, a that, fun one. That's kind of like what the bubble tried to do with cameos, but nowhere nearly succeeded. It, it, is, it almost feels bubble-esque, this, this story right. sometimes. <laughs> Not in terms of like it being as cringe as yeah. bubble, but it, was, it had that sort of... The characters had the same level of intellect. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, another one I noticed, I love... Obviously, the opening scene when they're doing the puzzle is really the only time they do like this split screen format, which they really could have incorporated into the before and after retelling of yeah. this if they really wanted to. I'm I'm not fussed. They didn't some Anley Hulk mess going on. Soderbergh oceans. Yeah, exactly. But what I did love and it was very subtle is I think it's Lyle. Is that his name? I keep forgetting his name. 
Leslie Odom Jr. or Lionel, where there's like a, a dolly track that goes where the camera like slides across the table to re-angle him and the a split screen goes in like a clockwise direction to adjust for the camera movement. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's just so cool. That's just like so you had to you had to know exactly how you were gonna edit that scene in your head to do that camera motion, make it all click. Just these characters are so boring. These characters <laughs> him a and sexy scientist. Are actually I'm sorry, they're just wasted in this. They have Aww. no they have no like it, it it really is in the ensemble, not including Ed Norton, it mm. actually is a Dave Batista and Kate Hudson show. Because Birdie <laughs> is like so bombastic and Dave Petit and to be honest I actually quite find his character very compelling and quite funny yeah like he's just an idiot and he it's- like he's, ta- he's talking about like men's place in society and, and like men being men and then immediately mm-hmm. his mother who he lives with is like what well, get off the streaming <laughs> yeah, that's a great that's some great casting uh, but I don't know Liberace, they're, just, they're, just, they're just so nothing to me right they really are two characters that because the, the best part about the introduction of all the characters mm. is you go, oh, well, all, like it's an eclectic group. Yeah. They're all going to have very interesting contributions to this story. Right. But that's about as far as it goes. Like, the introduction to Catherine Hahn's character is very awesome. It's awesome. It's like, oh, she's this this governor. And it's like, yep. there, there feels a like governor there in a COVID time. Yeah. 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 More dimensions to that character. But most of the time, she's just sitting there complaining or she's just an onlooker to the narrative. Yeah. They just don't have the the same level of contributions as like what Curtis and Shannon and you know that whole ensemble had. They all had inputs. Tony sure. Collette's character. Yeah. No, look, I'm I'm not going to argue that. I I don't disagree that that not everyone was given equal foot. And 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 to be fair, Knives Out doesn't either. There's definitely. I mean, like, what does Catherine Langford do in Knives Out and then smoke and make a phone call? Yeah. So yeah, I would say it's actually very age. Gated, right? All the older, <laughs> all the older middle-aged actors have yeah. all of the real clout plus but, crevent- Yeah, crevents. but but to your point, that this is a smaller ensemble, and I'm not I'm not going to argue that like you know, oh well, Catherine Hahn had the most to do in this film. It's like, well, no, it was very much diluted down to a, a few select people. Which, I don't mind downsizing your ensemble, yeah, but then you have to give them more to do. I think mm. which. They're just maybe there's just too much meat in the sandwich. Maybe they just didn't have enough time. I think because Blanc has a much bigger role, we we take away. That's true, bit. yeah. Because well, we feel like we're seeing the story through his eyes initially. I mean, we're, like on the doc scene, which is a great scene by the yeah. way. You should check it. I think it's for or Vanity Fair that did the the scene where he goes through and talks about like his camera decisions and whatnot. But what I love is that that scene is very much directed to be like, oh, we're going to look at this from his. Yeah. standpoint and most of the coverage is from Blanc's perspective looking out towards these characters that yeah. were sort of getting introduced for a second time but, but also that does align with him because he's heard of all these people yeah. which we, we don't know about at this point it, it, as far as we know this is the first time he's meeting any of these people when mm. in fact Helen has sort of given him a bit of a rundown on each of them prior mm. um, but it was interesting and committed to that thing where okay let's look at it from his perspective and we'll be introduced to all these characters Mm. Yeah, it, there's there's a lot of great touches in the film. Zeke, what was your highlight scene? Hmm. Um, I do actually really like the murder mystery party scene 
where it just gets when completely they're all at deconstructed. Dinner. That's great. In about two seconds. <laughs> and then for comic relief, the rubber crossbow bolt like yep. hits Ed Norton. And all the blood comes out. It's just it's quite hilarious. <laughs> I love specifically Daniel Craig's performance in that moment when he gets hit. And he just he's like doing he's like doing the arm waving thing of like oh look at that that, that that's where the blood's coming from I just that's so good yeah. I love it I'd so I'd probably much. say that was my highlight scene nice yeah mine comes a little bit after that because we talked a bit about the pacing and that some people found the film a bit boring or maybe they didn't get to that midpoint twist area and for me it's the scene right before then when you know they've gone upstairs and he, and he says I ruined your party on purpose because I think someone's trying to kill you. Yeah, which is a multi-layered statement as it is but then when everyone goes back down and everyone's sort of lying on the couch and everyone's debating like do we just go home tomorrow what's happening from an audience perspective we're like what on earth is what's the next thing that happens what's the next step and the tension is being built up from the dinning of Duke's phone the fact that it's making the Mona Lisa glass sm- smash over mm. and over again and it's like all these little sound cues are building up to create this tensive scene like I literally have no idea what the next step is mm. like I don't know if anyone's going to die soon. Who it's going to be? That everything's getting loud and obnoxious, and it's like, oh my god! I I thought that was a brilliant scene, mm. right before the midpoint twist. Yep. Well, it's right before the the only real death we see on screen. Yeah. Other than I guess Andy, that yes. like takes place before the film, but like, do we see only one who actually dies in this film? Unlucky for Duke, poor Duke. <laughs> That's what Dave Batista gets. <laughs> Only death in Daniel Craig films. He yep. died in Spectre. And oh, died there, in there you go. <laughs> two for two. No worries. Well, Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery is currently out on Netflix. Mm. Speaking of Netflix, Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? Uh, well, coming to Netflix this week is Noah Bombach's White Noise. It's very exciting. comes at the end of the week. And I will say before we move on, I am so, so, so relieved, Zeke. That Netflix is not putting out Death to 2022. Thank thank God. They've finally given up, exactly. (laughs) Uh, You'll be excited for this one. The third season of Bump is now out on Stan. Big time jump. It's like five years old. Oh, wow. There you go. go. To be honest, all the characters are like the teenagers are no longer teenagers stranger things affect us yeah so that (laughs) i i think it was really good that they took the bold move to make all the characters 21 in this okay over well they get pregnant at 16 i think they finish school in the end of season two so they're close to 18 so they might be 23 actually okay but But the the child is about to go to primary school oh very nice that that makes a lot of sense to jump that that time i think so too i mean it it, honestly, the second season, as someone who only watched it a couple of weeks ago, it's a very easy watching show. Mm-hmm. I think I binged season two in like a day because it's just, it, yeah. So I'm 100% yeah. watch it. Nice. Very exciting. Uh, come to Disney Plus. Actually, this came out last week. I forgot to even mention it. The Strange World animated film that's already out and streaming. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it bombed in cinemas. That's maybe why it's out already. Uh, Coming to binge, you got Jurassic World Dominion. Okay. Which, uh, speaking of films that should have bombed. Uh, you've also got the Lizzo concert special and a binge original comedy uh, looking... Well, it's a special looking back at all the good and bad and the cringe of Australian television in the past year. So I don't yeah. know, I don't really know what that is about. Maybe that's your death to 2022 right there. Yeah, specifically sounds, for Aussie TV. <laughs> it sounds interesting. Yeah. Now, coming to cinemas, 
Uh, we got Whitney Houston's biopic, I Want to Dance with Somebody, goes wide, as well as the Banshees of Inishira, and I mentioned that earlier. So those should play, that should be playing everywhere every day now. Uh, releasing later in the week, you got the Tim Winton adaptation, Blueback, which sees a young Abby and her mother fight against fish poachers. Didn't oh, even know nice. that was a thing, which sounds interesting. Uh, the Lost King, which sees Sally Hawkins as a real-life amateur historian, Philippa Langley, unearth King Richard III's remains in a car park. That sounds cool. And yeah, I've seen the trailer. Oh, it looks cute. Oh, very good. We like that. And finally, this one's for you, Zeke. Tom Hanks plays a, quote, grumpy widower who befriends a pregnant woman in A Man Called Otto. Okay. Is, is Tom He's Hanks going to be... grumpy. Is he going to be angry? <laughs> Is yeah, it going to be we'll mean? See. We'll see. <laughs> it's going to be like the most soft grumpy you've ever seen in yeah. your life. It's going to be like when your uncle stubs his toe and he's oh fiddlesticks. Mm. And uh, I wonder if he ends up happy at the end. Oh, it's a, it's a big mystery, Zeke. Mm. Sure it is. <laughs> but that's everything I'm into streaming in cinemas this week. No worries. Well, we're not catching any of those next week on the show. But Jake, what are we watching? Next week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. From my many wanderings on this earth, I had so much to say about imperfect fathers and imperfect sons, and about loss and love. I've learned that there are old spirits who rarely involve themselves in the human world, but on occasion, they do. I want to tell you a story. It's a story you may think you know, but you don't. A story. Of the wooden boy. Where am I? I feel as though you've been here before. Wooden boy with the borrowed soul. Be his son. Fill his days with light. We shall call you Pinocchio. <laughs> oh, what a day, what a day. During the rise of fascism in Mussolini's Italy, a wooden boy is magically brought to life. As he struggles to live up to his father's expectations. Now, ironically, between the two of us, we've almost seen the full movie. I've seen a big chunk of it. You've you've started watching it. Yes, I've watched. I think the first thirty minutes. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're both going to have to finish we, it this we week. Did Pinocchio <laughs> on the show. We did. We did. So it's going to be. I've really enjoyed what I've watched so far. I think it's yeah. it's it's dark. Right. Mm. You said it gets darker, so I did yeah, definitely gets darker. I so. mean, that word fascism is a uh, very important in this film, but I haven't finished it. I'm going to start from scratch, watch it from start to finish. Yeah, maybe tonight or tomorrow. Get onto it straight away. Maybe but... I'll finally watch uh, Shape of Water too. Try and get. You've never seen Shape of Water? <laughs> what? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I talked about it on Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, right. I guess you must have. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But I've watched Pacific Rim. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's fine then. Yeah. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Starship Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. I'm a real boy. That's probably what you said when we did Pinocchio in the first place. <laughs>